Let us read the passage. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is the issue for which he writes the chapter. Some were denying there was a resurrection of the dead. Now, before we go any further, who is denying that? The Sadducees, the liberal wing of Judaism, denied it. Plato taught Greek philosophers the immortality of the soul, but the cessation of the body. The body ceases at death. That was Greek philosophy by Plato. And he taught dualism. And dualism says uh, that matter is bad, spirit is good. So they had two views of the body. Uh, One, it didn't matter what you did with the body because it was evil anyway because it's matter. And the other was to be ascetic, to bring the body under all kinds of rules. And you see this in their sexuality. They said it didn't matter who you had sex with because the body is a bad thing anyway. Or on the other hand, they swung very what you'd consider puritanical, but it was Greek philosophy, uh, abstain from everything. The, the body is bad. Anything that's matter is evil. And so they said the body will cease. We will be delivered from a body. Get rid of it. And you see this in Platonic philosophy, reincarnationism, New Age, Hindu, Buddhism, the the body ceases. So a a whole lot of folks say when you die, it's over. The body, put it in a bag, put it in a box, get it under some dirt, and you'll never see it again. So in the church, some deniers rose up. And they said there's no resurrection of the dead. Don't be shocked. In the same church were people that said the cross wasn't enough. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have had hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, you could almost trans in his own rank, it was a military term, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, 
after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right, and do not go on sinning. For I say some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Four things we want to do. One, by review, our Easter sermon, Christ has been raised, and that's verses 1 through 11 of chapter 15. And then we will see seven consequences, and we will quickly enumerate those, of if he has not been risen, uh, Christianity falls apart. You may not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, That is going to be between you and God and your eternal destiny. Uh, But we believe in it factually. We believe it is a fact of history that no one has ever disproved. Thirdly, we just want to look at God's resurrection program. That he mentions Christ is the first fruit. Uh, Then those who are Christ at his coming. And then the end. And finally, uh, what these truths did in the life of those who truly believed in a resurrected Christ, how they lived, how they worked it out. And so we begin that he says in verses 1 through 12 that Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again. And then he said he not only rose again, he starts citing all the witnesses who saw that. And he mentions that he uh, was seen of Cephas in verse 5. He was seen of more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some had fallen asleep. Then James, and then to Paul himself. I believe there were 16 times after the resurrection of Christ that he was seen by various groups of people. So he's saying, we have preached to you that Christ was seen, witnessed, as being alive from the dead. It's a matter of the record. It's a matter of fact. Rome has never produced the body. Surely they could find a corpse in the city limits of Jerusalem. And they never could find it. Nobody for 2,000 years has found the body of Christ. 
The last sighting of Christ was 90 A.D. This isn't Elvis. This is Christ. 90 A.D., he was seen on the Isle of Patmos, and he was alive and well and in good health. His eyes penetrated like fire. His feet were in bronze, burning like bronze. He was alive and well. No decomposition had happened. He was in a glorified, resurrected body that's a sample of what's coming for us. So we said, Paula said, an empty tomb, living witnesses, and then he goes, and my own life being changed. We preach Christ has been raised from the dead. But if you can prove that he has not, if we believed a fiction, if we made up a fairy tale, and it's all a make-believe, there are seven consequences of believing there's no resurrection and that there's no risen Christ. Number one, if there's no resurrection, Christ must have not been risen from the dead. But he said, we preach to you that he was. So he says, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, first of all, you'd have to say, I don't believe Christ rose from the dead. It's all make-believe. It's all uh, fiction. You see, this is a part of the debate in the science world today, that the Bible is okay for telling you about uh, by and by, pie in the sky. It, it gives you a nice religious thrill, but it's not factually true. God stuttered in Genesis 1 and 2. God didn't create in six days. Because God just stumbled in and said, had to say something to start the Bible, so he just made up a lie. And since the telescope, we found out how to improve God's record of creation. But God said it the way it happened. We believe, we believe the Bible and everything it addresses, morals, ethics, anything true, God said the earth was round a long time before scientists did. God never did say it was flat. You see, God is up to date. He didn't write us a textbook on microbiology. That's not the purpose of the Bible. But whatever it asserts as being true is true. Whatever it asserts as being true is true. So he goes on to say that... Uh, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is vain, wasting a lot of time proclaiming something that's a lie. Thirdly, your believing is in vain. Uh, you believe to no purpose. There's, you've just been deceived. Fourthly, he says all those who preach Christ as being risen from the dead are found to be liars if it's not true. We are found to be misrepresenting God. If the dead are not raised, if Christ has not been raised. He goes on to say, verse uh, 17, you would still be in your sins had Christ not been raised from the dead. So without the resurrection of Christ, the cross is of no effect. That's hard to believe. We're big on the cross. We, we must be. But without the resurrection, the cross is nullified. Because Christ can't be a liar and atone for our sins. And he said, you kill this body, in three days I'll raise it up again. So, as Lewis said, he's either a liar 
a lunatic or Lord. He can't be all three. So the cross would save no one if Christ did not rise from the dead. Once again, when you get a crucifix, be sure it's empty. Christ is not on the cross. He has ascended into heaven. That's victory. Just the cross is not enough. Just the cross alone would not save you. Uh, verse 18, he says, All those who have died believing in Christ have perished if there be no resurrection of the dead, and tied to that if there was no Christ that was resurrected. And then he finally says, uh, Christians are a people that need to be put into a psych ward or to be examined as being moronic. Uh, they would see in verse 19, uh, they are a people to be pitied because they're deceived. It's a terrible thing to believe a lie and be duped out of your life savings. And it's a terrible thing to believe things no matter religiously or however it's told, did you know you can be as sincere as you want and been taught all your life that the moon is made out of cheese? Your sincerity won't change the fact. Well, I always thought it was this way. When did you thinking something make it true? See, Christianity is based upon objective truth. It's, see, one time I remember my dad telling about a guy on the job. He said, I, I just don't believe the Bible. And my father was a wise man. He said, well, that doesn't change anything. It just proves you're an unbeliever. But the Bible's still true. You don't have to believe it. God's not waiting for your vote. God's right. You know, it's like my kids. I'm waiting for them to agree with me, for me to be dad. Oh, no, no, no. I'm dad whether you like it or not. And all the adults said amen. amen, especially those with an empty nest. Uh, and then, so he says, this is no small stuff, these people saying there's no resurrection of the dead. And I uh, title this uh, that the deniers are truth deniers are hope destroyers. Now, how many funerals have most of you done? Most of you don't do funerals. I want to tell you something about the Bible. Uh, if you want to really, you ought to call an atheist to do your funeral or call somebody that believes in the resurrection of the dead. Um, let me read some things that I, uh, I went into Greek uh, philosophers and some of their uh, profound idiocies. Um, Aeschylus, if I say it right, he said, of a man once dead, there is no resurrection. Theocritus said, these are around first century philosophers influenced by Plato, hopes are among the living, the dead are without hope. Lucretus said, no one awakes and arises who has once been overtaken by the chilling end of life. Catalyst said, suns may set and rise again, but we 
When once our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. Um, and in contrast, you go and you view the catacombs in Rome and scrawled on the walls, one catacomb says, there is light in this darkness. There is music in these tombs. Their most common inscription was in Christ. That's what was the most common thing found on the catacombs, those subterranean places they just dug out of the wall there. It goes for miles under the city of Rome. The Christians had to go underground. They even called their uh, burial places motels because they saw it only as a night's rest, and in the morning they'd be resurrected. So they called them motels. But Greek philosophy said it's over at death. Your body just turns to the dust, and it's all over. Now, he says, but let me tell you what the gospel says. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. And what does he call him? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And you know, fallen asleep is a Christian euphemism for dying in Christ. It's not talking about the AM service. It's talking about falling asleep in Christ. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4, those that have fallen asleep in Jesus. Well, it says Christ is the first fruit. Now, let's understand. Uh, the Jewish harvest, they had a first fruit, fruit harvest. And what it simply meant is you gathered some of the beginning fruit of that harvest. They gathered together. They offered it up to God. And, of course, this first fruit was what? A sample, a foretaste of the rest of the crop that was coming in. So the first fruit in the spring that began to sprout, began to come out, whatever it was, Israel offered it up as a sacrifice to God. Now it says of Christ, Christ is the first sample of what it's going to be like when the whole resurrection crop comes in. You see, other people were raised, Jairus' daughter, uh, the widow of Nain. But they, they weren't given resurrected bodies. They eventually died again. Uh, Lazarus, he eventually died. We've got men like Enoch that was just taken to heaven like that. Uh, Elijah, taken right up to heaven. Never did die. But we have no sample of anybody being resurrected in the Bible. Resuscitated is the word we say. They brought them back to life, but they weren't given the resurrected body, but Christ is the first picture, the first man, the first person in history that died, was in a tomb for three days, raised up, and after he was risen, he ate with them, they touched him, they talked to him, they could hear his voice, uh, eventually they could recognize him, though in grief on the Emmaus Road, they didn't even know they were talking to Christ as he walked with the men on the Emmaus Road. He, dis, he disclosed himself eventually, but he hid himself. But he was talking, carrying on conversation. Christ is a sample of what all those who are in him will get when they die and are resurrected 
in a new body. We'll get one just like him. And Philippians says that. We will have a body made conformable to one just like Christ. Now, he goes on, not just Christ, but watch what else he says. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Then he explains, for as by a man death came. Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead, Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And I see this here is limited to only those in Christ will be made alive in this sense. He's going to resurrect all men eventually. But there's a resurrection to life and there's a resurrection to death. And we'll get to that. But he says, but each resurrected in verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, nearly 2,000 years ago, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So when Christ comes again, he's going to resurrect a lot of folks. Now, uh, let me give you a little sample. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. And it describes a group that will be changed and resurrected. Verse 13. Are you there? But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those that are asleep who have died in Christ. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The pagan world. They had, they had mourning and hopeless funerals. We'll never see you again. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus Christ, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What is he going to bring with him? Now, that's interesting. I thought my body was in the grave. Notice that. Through Jesus Christ, God will bring with him, Jesus Christ, those who have fallen asleep. When you die, we put your body in the ground. Where does the soul go? To be with Christ. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Right? 2 Corinthians 5. So my spirit soul, my immaterial me, is going to be at home. Like John 14, I make a place for you that you could be there with me. And we go there, and I believe carry on a conscious existence. But when Christ is going to come back, for his church, we come with him, and notice what he's going to do with us in the body. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay, let's say he comes right today. Do we go up first? He just said that we won't. We won't proceed. Well, well what, how's it going to happen? The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, I take that dead in Christ 
to be saints from the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, until this event. I take this to be the catching away of the church. Now, there are groups who say Christ comes and we all are raised at one time. I'm of a camp that says his coming's in two parts. He comes for his church in the air, and then he will bring us saints back with him when he comes to the earth at the end of the tribulation. So I see him coming to rapture us, catch away the church, and then come back when he comes to the earth. Many evangelicals believe there's just one coming. He just comes to the earth. Any way you cut it, when he comes, dead folks are going to come out of the grave. Dead in Christ, they're going to rise. It says, for the Lord will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be raptured. There's the word. Will be raptured, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So what does this mean? If uh, I was out at Rolling Hills last week. We did the graveside uh, funeral for uh, Fred Perry. And you always like to think the cemetery would be a great place to be when the Lord decides to come. But, you know, it's just like an elevator. The Lord's going to just bring those under the ground and bring them up to the same level we're at, and together we'll go up. The dead in Christ first, bring them up, but together we who are living, and, and that's been the hope of uh, Christians for years. You think we're crazy? You think Tim LaHaye invented left behind. No, it's this kind of verse that says, someday the church is going to be caught up in the heavens, and some of us may never have to die. That's not a bad prospect. If you want to believe false theology, don't believe it. But you can't take my hope. Leave me alone. I'm convinced there's going to be a generation of people on the earth that are going to be caught up with the dead in Christ to go be with the Lord. We'll never have a taste of death. Now, let me say this. If if you're not caught up that way, it still won't be too bad going subway. My dad used to always say, I want to go airmail, but I may have to go subway. So if you die, going to sleep in Jesus is not too bad a deal. Christians have glorious deaths. They go out with hope with a smile on their face. They do. I love the Gaither song. His, Jesus is the first name we taught our babes and the last word our old folks say before they die. Jesus is a lifetime Savior. And so if you have to die, and I've been with many saints, they said the last words, and I think it was Fred Perry, he said when the kids just got there as he's dying, he says, I've got to go. I've got to go. said it three times, and he went. And he's with Christ. So, when Christ comes, I believe he's going to catch up saints at the rapture. Now, there's another time he's going to raise people. Look, if you will, to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. You need to know this because you may have to do a funeral someday. If not, you're going to die. And if not, you're going to attend more funerals than you ever wanted to. Will you have any hope? What will you base your hope on about the future? Uh, listen to verse 7. Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, 
Now, what is the thousand years? We call that the millennium. Millennium is the Latin word for thousand, okay? We believe there will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And why do we say that? Because God said it first. It's always good to say what God says, you'll be safe. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to get them for battle. And one, uh, I, I don't like that verse. I want something else. Uh, I want the verse, uh, verse 4. You should have known that, saints. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the unsaved dead. They, they get resurrected later after the thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So uh, Christ comes from the church. Some say, no, it all happens here. Either place, we see seven years prior, see him coming back with the saints in the tribulation, set up his thousand-year reign, and at that time, he resurrects those who died during the tribulation period, who refused to worship the beast, who saw martyrs' death. He raises them from the dead. And I, am, I believe that the Old Testament saints at this time would be raised so that they could be in the thousand-year reign of Christ with him. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be raised at the same time he raises these tribulation saints. Now... After he does that, there's another resurrection. And that other resurrection is verse 11 through 15. Let me read it to you. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Now, be sure. We do not understand this scene to be saved and unsaved. He's already resurrected the saved, caught the church away, raised these tribulation saints, raised the old. This scene will be only people whose names were not in the book of life. This is not a general judgment of all men. We're not all just going to one. No, there's an order. Christ first, 2,000 years ago. The next thing in the calendar is he's going to raise the saints. Uh, however you want to chart it, we believe the church is caught up. We believe the church comes back when he comes to the earth. Then he's going to raise the tribulation saints, going to raise the Old Testament saints. They're going to reign a thousand years. After that thousand-year reign, he's going to then raise these people from the dead, and they stand before the throne of God, and the books are open. 
One book is the book of life. And the judge were, and another is the book of works. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if any name, anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Two resurrections. First resurrection, all those that are resurrected to life, used of Christ and his people. Second resurrection, a resurrection to judgment. See, he calls this a second death. Death relating to God is separation from God. And these men, these wicked people, these unbelievers that come before God, they will be banished from God's presence forever, for they have chosen in life not to want God. They don't want God in their life. They don't want God. And so God says, I don't have your record of your birth, and I've got a record of all your works, and all of your good works and bad works do not add up to earning heaven. You can never be good enough to earn heaven, and you never would come to Christ. So I'm going to banish you forever. So God's resurrection program is Christ first. The next thing is the coming of Christ. However you see that, one coming or two parts to that coming. Then, after the thousand-year reign, he says he's going to raise the dead. And here is a difficult passage. Go back to 15. Stay with me, and let me see if I could interpretively translate. Um, let's see, verse 24. Are you there? 1524. Keep on. I love the paper. I want to hear it. I don't want to hear any telephone texting. Then comes the end. And I see this as after he's, his resurrection program's completed, after he's reigned a thousand years, then comes the end of the sequence. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, I think his reign on the earth, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, Christ's millennial reign, he says, he'll shatter all powers like a potter's vessel. Psalms 2, Psalms 8, Psalms 110, Psalms 116. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. At the end of the thousand-year reign, when he resurrects his people, he'll destroy death so that it will never exist again. For God, God the Father, has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that God the Father is accepted who put all things in subjection under God the Son. When all things are subjected to him, God the Father, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under himself, Christ. That, after this thousand-year reign, Christ may resume his Trinitarian position among the Trinity 
in which God will be all in all for all eternity, and he won't have to be exerting a Davidic millennial reign. He will conquer all of his enemies so that he could reign, destroy death, and then he resumes his position in the Trinitarian Godhead in a unique way to resume eternity. He was not always king on earth. He'll do that just for a short thousand years, and then he's going to resume that Trinitarian intimate relationship from eternity. Now, uh, a lot of theology for you. Uh, Everybody's a theologian, though. Everybody's got a view, don't they? Everybody's got a view. So that's why you want to know what God has said. I um, think it's interesting what Paul says, how this affected his life. He said uh, several things. Verse 29, there's 200 views, and so I'm not even going to venture mine. We don't know quite what it means. Uh, Maybe one of the best views I've heard uh, was given by John MacArthur, who said that uh, it could be the people being baptized refers to living believers who give outward testimony to their faith by baptism. And that uh, if the witnesses of this saw them subsequently die and not be resurrected, why would you want to follow such a faith? It just goes nowhere. If these people being baptized for their faith and even suffering for their faith, if there's no future resurrection, why baptize anyone? It's all a hoax anyway. But that's just a venture. If you want to study it, there's at least 200 views. Tell me what you come up with. Uh, I know you won't do it, so let's keep going. Uh, why? Now, these are the implications. Why are we in danger every hour? What is he saying? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? What is he saying? I'm so convinced of the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead in Christ. I'm willing to live the most dangerous life you could probably live in the first century unless it was being a gladiator. Every day, I die daily. And he's not, that, this is not a sanctification verse. He's not saying, I'm crucified with Christ. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm living with physical danger every day. And the beast of Ephesus, we're not sure. We have no place in Acts where he fought with literal animals at Ephesus. But in Acts 19, a crowd was as vicious as animals that wanted to get him killed. And the Roman soldiers had to rescue him and send him to Nero. But he said, I believe this so much, I don't even count my life dear. Did you know this is going to be the shortest part of your existence, the time you consume groceries on this life? 
before a glorified body. This is the shortest part of your existence, physical life. Who cares, Paul could say, if I die at 30, die at 40, why live to your 80 if you have no hope beyond the grave? So you're Howard Hughes, and you've got all kinds of money and all kinds of women, but you're scared to death of every germ, and every room has to be sprayed, and you have to live under tents so you don't catch any germs. Uh, what a miserable life just to live a long time. Uh, it's not really the world's greatest blessing. I don't care if I die. I found something worth living for that's greater than my physical life, and that is preaching a Christ that is alive and that can change a man's life. I risk my life. That's what he's saying. Truth has an impact. It's not just another category. I want another argument. No, this changed my life. Every day I'm under the threat. I'm climbing out of windows. I'm being let down out of cities in baskets. I'm spending nights on the Mediterranean, nearly drowning. I'm in the presence of false brothers. I'm in the presence of stripes, prisons. What for? Preaching something like a resurrected Christ. I ask you, do you believe enough of the Bible to risk your life for it? American Christianity, the risk is I might make it to the morning service. We're a risk-free Christianity. We don't know what it means to pay the price to be a Christian in America. We've been spared, and I'm not trying to get martyred. I'd like to maybe get out of here a little bit easier, but would you? Paul said, I'm giving you my testimony. I live in the threat of dying every day, and I've accepted it because I cannot go back on the truth I've told you. I saw the resurrected Christ, and he changed my life. So, willing to uh, risk your life. And then he goes on to say something. Um, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That was the Epicurean philosophy. And that was kind of what uh, the 60s philosophy was and what it is today. It's basically a big philosophy in the 60s was existentialism. The only thing that matters is that you exist and you're cut off from history. You don't know that you got a future. So what should you do? Sex, drugs, alcohol, party, because all you got is right now. There's no future and you're really cut off from the past. Your only philosophy of life is whatever I am right now. I just, and so let's party. Let's party. When you don't know what else to do on the deck of the Titanic, party. But the party won't end the crash. And so he said, if I didn't believe in a resurrected Christ, it wouldn't matter how I live. I'd be disengaged from service. I would get out of what I'm doing. It's a dangerous vocation. I'd start being a party animal. I'd start myself the happy hour uh, apostolic uh, bar, and let's just party until it all ends. But he said, I'm not living like an Epicurean. I'm not partying away the days I've got. I don't know how many I've got, but I'm not going to party them away. It'd be a wonderful thing if God would rescue us Christians from the love of pleasure and the love of laziness. 
It is amazing how lazy we become as a people. Uh, I, I just, uh, I've been reading the life of Jonathan Edwards and, and other men, and, and you just feel like Brother Pygmy, because you are. I mean, that uh, he said he would uh, study 16 hours a day. He'd only, cu- he'd cut wood. His exercise program was to cut wood 30 minutes a day, and it would kind of help you in Massachusetts to cut wood. In 1700, you could freeze real quick. And 11 children and uh, two four-hour sermons on Sunday. And he's written so many volumes that Yale, Yale University has now printed, I believe it's 16 to 24 volumes of his writings. And he went to one church where he had to borrow paper. He was so broke. And we still read a man that died 250 years ago. He wasn't lazy. We're still reading Luther. We're still, where do these guys get paper? Where do they get pens? And we got all the technology. What are we producing? But here Paul says, I'm not a party animal. I'm spending my life on the truth that Christ will raise me from the dead, and I shall stand before him, and all my labors here will carry over to the next life. I'm going to meet them in the future. He goes on to say, stop being deceived. In the Greek language, it really is stop something you're already doing. Present imperative. Stop what you've been doing. Stop letting yourself be talked out of your faith. Quit letting this group in the church that are denying the resurrection. Stop it. Stop it. Don't just give your mind to anything, any view, any philosophy. I want to tell you, just the 40 years I've been in this church, you can't keep up with all the winds of strange doctrines, strange teachings blowing through the church all the time, all the time. Uh, I had a man bring me some books the other day. They're nothing but full of heresy, apostasy, and if I wasn't a pastor, I would have spit on it. It was trash, denying all kinds of doctrines of the Bible. What do I think about it? Could I throw up on it? But that's not nice in church. What are you believing this stuff for? What are you reading this for? Stop letting your mind be deceived. You know, that's what's tricky about the media. You know, if it's said on TV, it must be true. Or if it's said in Newsweek or Time because they represent such a Christian view of everything. Did you know all media as a whole is controlled by humanists, liberals, those who deny Christ, deny the Bible, and deny everything Christianity teaches? And guess who are the mind shapers of the culture? Guess who your kids listen to more than you and your little homespun philosophy and your belief in the Bible? In their little texting program and these little phones that they get by the time they're 11 and a half, the world is shaping their minds, and everybody doing the shaping are anti-God. He says, stop, stop letting yourself be deceived. He goes on, and he says, wake up from your drunken stupor. That's really literal. The word there is be sober, but the idea is get yourself out from the influence of being drunk on something. Get yourself out of the wrong influence. Sober up. 
drink some hot coffee, take a cold shower, and forget where you partied last night. Wake up. He's telling them everything's at stake on truth. And if you're being lied to by this party in the church, wake up. Wake up. Get out of the stupor. You ought to, the whole church ought to be rising up and say, you guys must not be with us. Get out of here. Go to the Greek temple. This isn't what Christianity stands for. Wake up. And then he says, as it's right, and stop sinning. Then he says this, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. John Stott uh, wrote when he was in London, he wrote a little book called Our Guilty Silence. How many people around you have no knowledge of God because they can never get it from you? What would people find out about God knowing you? He says, these people are perishing. All of Corinth is perishing. They're sleeping with everybody. Temple prostitution. The place is booming with sin. Sin's all over the city. And there's thousands in the city that don't know God, and you guys are being deceived and being talked out of the resurrection of the dead. Don't you know many around you are perishing? They don't know about God because you won't tell them. You're being caught up in a sideline view over the future of the dead and whether Christ rose. You could have never become a Christian if you didn't believe the gospel we gave you. He died. He was buried. He rose again. Maybe you need to be saved. If you're here and you're just coming to church because it's a nice thing to do, and it is, we're glad to have you. Have a donut. But you can still die and go to hell if you don't put your faith in a risen, living Christ. A living Christ. Listen, I think of the last words of men that died without hope. said that you've died. Voltaire said, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. Christ, Jesus Christ. Voltaire, the famous French atheist. Thomas Paine, who wrote the remarkable atheistic document, The Age of Reason, said, I would give worlds if I had them if the Age of Reason had never been published. Lord, help me. Christ, help me. Stay with me. It is hell to be left alone. These were his last words before he plunged into eternity. But August Toplady, who wrote Rock of Ages, said this, The consolations of God to such an unworthy wretch are so abundant that it leaves me nothing to pray for but a continuance of them. I enjoy heaven already in my soul. I love what William Wilberforce wrote, the great anti-slavery politician of England. My affections are so much in heaven that I can leave you all without regret. Yet I do not love you less, but God more. Uh, Dear child of God, I cannot tell you what it means to be undergirded by these truths. I think I, I came to Christ through the death of a family member that 
conviction was really seized on my heart because I just wanted to be a San Pablo Richmond hoodlum. Not really, nothing what they do today, but, you know, I was lost. I didn't want Christ, especially the Christianity my folks had. You couldn't sin a lot. You had to break with sin. And I knew I didn't want that kind. But death, and we're looking in John Howard's face at Wilson and Kratzer, and knowing I had no hope, knew that I rejected the only thing that could save me. Boy, it seized my heart as a 12-year-old boy. For two years, I wrestled. And every time I was out being rowdy with guys and hanging out and doing what guys do when they hang out, when I would be coming home, I'd think, what if you died tonight? What if you died? What if you died? I was with a guy one night, went to play chicken on Dam Road, nearly got us killed. I wasn't a driver. I was just the passenger. But did you know what? You get killed too. And he was half lit. And I begged God one day over by Montalvin Manor. I knelt in a field. Please don't let me perish. I've not received Christ, but I don't want to perish. I believe there's hell. I believe judgment. And I know I've rejected you up to now. And in great mercy as to you, he rescued me. And one of the greatest things he did for me, delivered me from the fear of death. I never knew I'd have to do so many funerals in my life because I was terrified at the thought of it. Why? Because the truth gives you hope. And hope abounds in the midst of death, in the midst of trial, in the midst of test. If anything shines through is hope when you believe in a risen Savior, and that's what God's given you. We've got hope that nobody else can give. Cling to it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for our hope. Our hope is Jesus. Our hope is he hasn't forgot us, that he's coming back. And he's going to raise every body of every believer that's ever been put in the ground and take them to heaven, give them a glorified body. What a day, a body just like that of Christ. And oh, I think of the resurrection of the unsaved, to stand before a white throne judgment and hear the judge say, I don't know you. I have no record of your birth. I only have records of your deeds, and none of them add up to heaven. None of them are equal to what you could have had in me. Thank you, Lord. As I, I'm sure I'll be burying a brother-in-law in a matter of weeks, uh, I pray that Carolyn know above all whether her brother's really saved. We want to know that because it changes everything for us if our loved ones just know Christ. Jesus, come quickly. We'd love to see you face to face, and we'd like to be caught up alive. Would we not love to do that? But if not, I'll take resurrection. One way or the other, we're going to see you face to face.